0: Thank you for checking out the Missio Day Humble Park podcast and joining us as we join God as he makes all things new. We are excited to pursue his heart for the greatest city on earth in the center of the city in this great neighborhood of Humble Park All right, well, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen and uh, and a couple of ladies in the back there. Gentle fellas. Gentle fellas, all right. Um, yeah, like Bam said, my name is Mason. As some of you know, and uh, today we are going to discuss Esther, Queen Esther. Um, before I get into it, let me pray because I feel like I'm going to stammer along for a while and then and then even forget to pray. So let's do that. So Lord, thank you for this morning. Um, hey Lord, we just want to continue to thank you, bring thankfulness to you. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, Lord, we, we thank you for uh, just for who you are. We know that in our heart of hearts that you care for us, you love, for, you love us, um, you have great intentions and purpose for us, Lord, so we thank you for that. Um, man, and we just ask for continual grace and mercy and direction in our lives, Lord, we pray to make great decisions knowing uh, knowing for better or worse that we are, that we are making, uh, making a decision to be a part of something, Lord. God, we love you for that. We praise you. Amen. Amen. All right. So, today is a day of stories, and I think this is a good setting for it. A little, a little bit of intimacy, good storytelling, things like that. Um, that. That's what scripture is, right? The Bible is a bunch of stories told mostly orally, right? Over time, they were told orally, and then over time, someone would start to write them down. For the most part, that is how scripture came about. Um, so we'll start off with a story here. About a decade ago, um, I started as an electrician, or about 12 years ago now almost. So it just, the, the days keep going. So I used to do electrical work. Part of that is I would, uh, I would attend a tech school. And so in this tech school, um, we would meet once a week at about 6 o'clock. So when you're in the trade, you kind of work the same eight hours every day, right? 7 to 3.30. Eight-hour day, 30-minute lunch. It's pretty spot on. So if class is starting at 6, you got just a little bit of time to probably get some food, show up a little early. And that's what most of us did, got food, showed up early, and either did the work we were supposed to be doing the week before or kind of just chilled and, and talked and stuff like that. Also, back then, I used to be, like, a real evangelist. I did real evangelical things, so I was, like, constantly trying to talk to people about Jesus and things that evangelicals do, even to the point where, like, when it got close to Christmas, I would buy boxes of Bibles and give them to people, and I'm like, I, I like the Bible. Shirley, you will like the Bible if you read it, and I really wasn't trying to push much. I really just like the Bible. Here, I love this. You should, too, and... Um, And that was kind of what I did. So people knew that organically what it turned into is story time. In this session, I would just start telling stories. I started to realize that if I just told verses, it it just wouldn't click with people, right? If if, If you don't get the story, if I tell you a sentence of that story, it just doesn't hit the same. Even if it sounds poetic and nice, which Scripture does, right? Scripture has this groundedness to it where it's like, It's a do or a don't, or it's a this or that, but at the same time, it's poetic. There's this expression to it, and it holds both of those forms at the same time. Well, if I just give you a little bit of expression, but with with no groundwork to it, with nothing to work in, you, you may not feel the same way. So what I would do is I would just tell stories that you see in the New Testament, stories of Jesus healing a blind man with no real verses to it. But just to tell you, hey, this is how Jesus healed a blind man. He spit in the mud. He put it on his eyes. He had the man go wash it off in the pool of scent. And all of a sudden, the man could, hit, could see, right, And stories like that. And it would just go on week after week. And so with that, I kind of want to do the same thing with Esther. There's only 10 chapters. It's not that long. I'll kind of summarize all but the one chapter we're going to kind of focus in, and that's chapter 4, which is kind of right in the middle in a part that I consider uh, very dynamic in, in itself but I think hearing the whole story adds to the dynamicness or the dynamiteness I don't know there's a word there dynamism it adds to that if you hear what happens before and you hear what happens after that section right, so like I said only 10 chapters um, a couple of overviews of Esther in general right Esther is one of only two books in the Bible that does not mention God directly right so yeah do you know what the other one is song Song of solomon now song of solomon is an extremely interesting book which doesn't get talked about specifically in a church setting for reasons i don't know why probably because it's it's a a little sensual it's kind of a graphic it's kind of a, a, a a graphic novel if you will but ultimately ultimately both of these books are referring to the Spirit of God, right? They don't mention them directly, but you see God moving. Song of Solomon, for example, there's love and intimacy of the Spirit, something we don't see in a lot of other chapters, but that's an essence of God, the intimacy he's trying to show us in Song of Solomon. In Esther, it's kind of along those same, same lines, but with the Spirit moving, less of the intimacy and more of decision-making and how that impacts what the Spirit is doing, how God is moving so I love I love this book I love chapter four, the chapter we 're going to read um, and like I say it it speaks to an organic movement of god 's spirit without a direct connection or correlation and so the reason I think that this is interesting and important is that in some form or fashion, I think we seem to rationalize the concept of, of God somehow some way we 've rationalized this creator that has existed and then created everything else that we call existence. So somewhere we rationalize that, God the Father. Somewhere along the lines we begin to rationalize that creator becoming a man. That's a, that's a whole thing, but we've, somehow we've rationalized that and we know Jesus the friend. But I think for some reason there's a disconnect with God the Spirit or the Helper or the healer, the, sometimes I call it the shifter, the, the, you know, the, the one that's, that weaves in and out of our day-to-day existence. For some reason, we, we haven't rationalized that so much. And what we do see are like the holy roller type ones where they're like you know, praying in tongues or raising people from the dead or hooting and hollering this, this you know, manifestation of the spirit, but not so much the organic, the naturalness of what the spirit is in our lives day-to-day. And so hopefully we can use this story um, to kind of connect. Now, this story is one that is just like our lives. It's unfolding, it's unraveling. Whether we want it to or not, it just keeps going. It's kind of like a rolling train. And it's rolling, and in this story, Esther's got a got a choice to to either take a hold or let it pass by. And a lot of it, that's that's what our life is. Things are moving. There's moments where we can say, all right, I'm going to get in it, or I'm I'm just going to stay over here. And either way, it's still going. It's just what's left over is is where that leaves us, right? We're either over here or we're a part of it somehow. So we got a few main characters. King, the king of Persia, King Ahasuerus. And I'm probably saying that way wrong, but I'm giving it my best. King Ahasuerus, right? But most importantly, he's the king, king of Persia. Um, we've got Esther, we've got Mordecai. Mordecai is, uh, her cousin. It says that it's her uncle's son. And Esther doesn't have a father and mother, so Mordecai seems to be older. He's also sometimes referred to as her uncle. Maybe Hebrew doesn't have a word for cousin, but we do. So it's his cousin. It's her cousin. But he seems to be older because he raised her. Um, and he has influence in, in this, in this story. And then we also have Haman, which is he's kind of like the, an appointed one of the king of Persia here, sort of like a number two, if you will. And so ultimately, this, this story is kind of like a like a bookend or a book match. You got a you start with a king, a queen, and sort of a number two, and you end with the same. King stays the same. But at the end, we have Queen Esther, and we have Mordecai as number two, her 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 cousin. All right, so we, we'll go we'll go to chapter one. 1, 2, and 3. And we'll kind of go through these and I'll... I'll uh, I've got just a, a couple of sentences here to, to summarize it, but, but I'll, I'll be brief here. So chapter 1 starts off with the king of Persia putting on this long, lofty banquet to show off all that he has. And it's like a six-month-long banquet. It's like a ridiculously long party where there's the drinking the feasting, probably some promiscuous things going on, other things that happen at half year long, semi-annual banquets, so I, you know, whatever happens there, that's what's going on. And at some point towards the end of all this party and in this display, the king calls for the presence of his wife, Queen Vashti. Well, she refuses to come, and this infuriates him. So him and his delegates, they put forth a decree that she's no longer queen, and whatever happens to her is probably not that great. But they also add that all women should be subject to their husbands. So that's in the decree. That's now law, which I think is interesting for many reasons. We won't get into it, but I just want to put a little like asterisk there, interesting. All right, so chapter 2 comes, and now the delegates and the king decide, hey, now's a good time for basically a beauty pageant. We're going to hold a beauty pageant for a new queen. So let's go gather all the beautiful young versions in the land of Persia, which is at this time a, a great deal of the Middle East. Let's go gather them and bring them together. So in this group of women chosen to be a part of this is Esther. She, she, she must be beautiful. And so one thing Mordecai tells her as she gets chosen for this is to not reveal that She's Jewish. All right, these are Jewish people. The Persians are not. They're a different culture, ethnicity of people. <clears throat> and so there's this really long, like, months and months of, like, being perfumed and all this stuff to get ready to be displayed to the king. And eventually Esther is chosen. She's now chosen as queen. It, it all happens very quickly in the story. But also what happens in chapter 2 is that now that she's appointed queen, Mordecai must be spending more time around the palace. He's around the king's gate, and he, hears, he overhears two eunuchs that serve the king. They're plotting to lay hands on him or to kill him. And so Mordecai sends word to Esther, and Esther sends word or gets word to the king on behalf of Mordecai. And Mordecai is forever remembered for this. It's actually written down that this is how Mordecai saved the king, and then those, those eunuchs are, are killed. They're dealt with. There's a lot of killing and references to killing in Esther. It's, this is how people used to live lives, and they still kind of do. All right, so then we go to chapter 3, okay? I hope, I hope you enjoy it. It's getting, it's getting even meatier here. Oh, it's like of, like, yeah, it, thank you. Thank you. That's what these stories are like. And yet, somehow God is moving in this. So I, I'm glad you point that out, because we'll, we'll get there. So... It says that Haman is now appointed as a, a high, a, like an appointed official. We'll call him sort of a number two to the king right now. Um, and there's there's a bit of a, a, a cultural tradition, if you will, to bow in the presence of the king, or even uh, people like Haman who are coming around. They represent the king. Well, Mordecai, he's a Jewish man with principles. He he serves a God that doesn't want people bowing to random people like this, right? So Mordecai is not bowing. This infuriates Haman, and so he goes to the king when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. He's like, Oh, I'm not just going to take out Mordecai, I'm taking out all the Jews. And so he goes to the king and he says, Hey, there are people here, people in your land, that have a different set of rules, they have a different set of religion. They just, this could mess up your kingdom. And he also pays the king, Haman does, um, some silver to get this decree in place. But they don't do it right away, they're angry. And they wanna, he wants to kill people, but you know what? We're going to cast lots to see when this will happen. Okay, how about in 13 months? All right, so they're so mad that they're going to wait 13 months to eradicate all the Jewish people. Okay, this is, this is real stuff. And so the decree is, is put out. And here's, here's where we get to chapter 4, the, the decision of decisions. So now I'm going to actually read some verses. That's what good Christians do. Read verses. Okay, so chapter four, Mordecai comes to the king's gate and he's got sackcloth and ashes, and he's weeping, and he's and he's making a big hoopla, and finally he gets the attention of Esther's servants. So they, they never speak directly, they speak basically through servants or through through a messenger. And Mordecai sends a message to Esther saying, Hey. This decree is out here. You need to do something to save us, to save you and your people, right? Keep in mind, it's important to note that, again, she never revealed that she's Jewish. So technically, she could be safe here. That's just something that we should note. So this word gets to Esther, and here we go. We pick up in verse 11. She says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's word, and Mordecai responds, this this is great. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more Than all the other Jews, for if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. If you have been anywhere involved in a church or Christianity in the last probably four decades, that is a verse of verses right there. For such a time as this. But let's keep going. So Esther must have a change of heart her reply now to Mordecai is go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan which this, that's the capital of Persia and fast for me neither eat nor drink for three days night or day my maids and I will fast likewise and so I will go to the king which is against the law and if I perish I perish so Mordecai he goes and 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 gets the people prepared now, this is, this is bold, right? She has, she has a change of heart here, but, but let's look at really what's going on. Because, again, Scripture has this groundedness. It also has this poeticness, this expression to it. And we have to see the words that are within the words, right? Anytime we write, it's going to sound loftier than what's really being said. And that's just, just kind of in general how people write as opposed to how they speak, especially in times of, that are challenging and tough. Right? It's not Game of Thrones where it's scripted and everything sounds like it's like old English for some reason, like perfect. Right? It doesn't happen like that. So what's Esther saying? She's saying she, she, she has it where it's, oh, well, there's a law that says I can't go. She's like, no, I could be safe here. I have the most to lose. Right? If she goes, we already know the, the king is, is crazy. He, he's off his wheels to some degree. He's very rash in his decisions. She has the most to lose. She's saying no. If I reveal, I've already not revealed that I'm a Jew. If I go in now, this could ruin me. This could ruin her livelihood. And Mordecai's, uh, Mordecai's response, he's saying, if you don't do it, I will. He's going, someone's going to get this done, probably Mordecai. And remember, Mordecai was already noted by the king to save his life once before. So he, he's, he's on his radar and so she replies. She, she, she knows now, okay, this is the right, this is the right thing to do. But she, she has a decision to make, but she's reluctant to make it. Ultimately, she does. And she responds with some firmness. If she perishes, she perishes. And I think that's bold. But let's not confuse the poeticness that these are not two real people having a tough conversation trying to get through something. So Esther makes this, this, this decision to go and see the king. And what happens? Well, let's see. That's where we got the next few chapters. I'm going to go back into my narrator mode. So she goes to the king. And instead of being killed, ultimately, she finds favor. And the king asks what her request is. She asks that she can hold a banquet for the king and for Haman. So now we go back to the party and to the drinking and all the stuff. So she hosts a banquet. And the king is, is just so enthused by this. Now in chapter 5, they're hosting this banquet, that he offers Esther up to half the kingdom. So now she's found favor. She's offered up to half the kingdom. I'm going to pause and, and go on a little tangent here that the other time we see someone offered half the kingdom is in Mark chapter 6. John the Baptist has now been in prison. Bam knows this very well. Oh, not the prison part. Yeah. No, but he knows this. He 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 knows this story, right? And so, so he's been he's been imprisoned by Herod, and the daughter of Herodias is is dancing for Herod, and he's wowed by this, and all the people are wowed by her beauty, and he says, "I will give you everything, up to half the kingdom." And you know what she asked for? The the head of John the Baptist. Now, a few years back, Bam actually spoke on this. He may not remember. I remember this vividly, and he said that. If the preparer was worth half the kingdom, right? That's telling us that preparation is half the kingdom, right? Our preparation is, is worth half the kingdom. And so what's this half worth? I don't have that answer, but I think, I think it's something to think on. So she finds favor. She's offered up to half the kingdom, And chapter 5 continues with Haman sees Mordecai again, becomes even more furious, and he goes and gets gallows set up to hang Mordecai. He's like, I'm not just going to kill all the Jews. I'm going to kill Mordecai, especially a certain type of way, right? And as the story keeps going, now we're in chapter 6. Oh, and by the way, Esther is now asked for a second banquet, okay? That's important. So in chapter 6, the king now remembers Mordecai. He remembers this and he sets him up to be honored by all, of all people, uh, Haman himself. So he has Haman go out to honor Mordecai. So now what has Esther found? She's found that she's not alone, right? Now there, there, there's a whole front coming up between her and Mordecai representing the Jewish people, and this will come into play in a little bit. She finds out she's not alone, and she finds that her case, the case for her request is being built right before her. Again, she had a tough decision to make, she stands and she makes that decision, and the spirit is moving. God is moving here, and he's setting something up. This probably wouldn't have happened had she not made this decision, but it keeps going. So now, chapter 7, Mordecai has now been honored in chapter 6. The second banquet has taken place in, in chapter 7. And, the, and now Esther lets a request be made known. It's her, the king, and Haman. And she asks that, that her life and the life of her people be spared. And the king is confused. He's like, well, who has come against you? And she's like, well, it was Haman. So now he, you know, he's being looked down upon, and the king leaves in his fury, and he goes to the palace garden. And it just so happens that time and chance and you know, serendipitousness, that when the king returns, Haman is a little bit drunk. He's trying to get to Esther to plead his case, and he stumbles and falls on her. And the king comes in to see it. Now he's furious. And he sends Haman to be killed. And where is he killed? He's hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And not only that, the king grants her request. So she's found favor. She's offered up to half the kingdom. She finds that she's not alone. A case is prepared for her and her, and, and, and her request is granted. In chapter 8, now, now Mordecai is being appointed in a high position similar to what Haman is. He's starting to rise up. So now we have a Jewish queen, and, and, uh, and an appointed Jewish official in this land. So the king cannot overturn a decree that's already been written. What he can do is write a second decree, one that says that the Jewish people can defend themselves. Right. So he didn't just change everything, but because of the decision that Esther made, the people are now given a chance. And that is something that we look for in life, just that chance to stand for ourselves, so again as, as it is now revealed that Esther the queen is Jewish it's revealed that Mordecai is a Jew rising in rank this is being seen by the people out in the land those that were coming to, to kill the Jewish people waiting for that 13th month and fear is overcoming them so mentally the Jewish people are starting to establish uh, a higher ground right? so that physically when they come to fight all, they already have a mental edge, and that's huge. That's huge in really anything, physical or not, or, or, or you know, fighting or not. And in chapter 9, the Jews ultimately destroy their tormentors. And, 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 and the story closes out now with Esther, very much a man-written book. It ends with Mordecai, and so it, shows, it says that Mordecai advances to number two in the kingdom. So again, that book match where we have, you know, a, a story arc where um, it ends how it started, but with different types of people. And the Jewish people have now come up. So again, let's recap. Esther has a tough decision, but she makes that tough decision. She stands firm. Whether she perishes, good, bad, or indifferent, she makes it. She finds favor. She's offered up to have the kingdom. She finds she's not alone. I think that's important. I think a lot of times we feel like we're going to make a decision to be alone, and we're not. Mordecai's there. Her request is granted, and ultimately, she gives her people a chance to live, even with a decree of death. Okay, I, I, ho- I hope I hope I did that justice. I hope you guys kind of enjoyed that. Thank you, thank you. So, thank you. So, I, I love I love this story. I fell in love with chapter four a long time ago. But then, when I got more, you know, preparing for this, not more into it, but pr- preparing for this. It, it just struck me more and more like this movement of God, right? This organicness of God. And I really, I wanted to spend the time narrating so that we see the arc of the spirit is, is moving and what happens when it's united with these firm decisions that we make, right? And not every firm decision is life or death like this, right? It's not like that. But there are micro and macro decisions we're making day in and day out. And I feel like that's important. I feel like that is when we start to get in line with the Spirit, when we can stand on something, good, bad, or indifferent, and make that. We see that, because God is it's moving already. right? That's the point. This stuff is unfolding. It is a rolling train, and we, we may not get on it. This is not a salvation thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is the everyday life stuff. I don't want that to sound out of context. But I think we find ourselves conditioned to make reference to God in name, or else... We think he might not be there. And our days seem maybe chaotic or at times they just lack luster. But God's spirit is moving in the midst with us um, giving us a chance. And again, that's, that's all we're asking for here. We pray for God to intervene only so that we can have a chance for something. That's ultimately where we're at moment by moment. So the story has no pristine point to it, right? If, if it, right other than... Okay. If anything, it is similar to our lives. Not that we have year-long banquets or weird beauty pageants with a bunch of virgins or things like that. But well, in, in general, whether it's our lives or the culture around us, what do we see in this, in this story as a whole? Drunkenness, anger, rash decisions. We see oppression of women. We see reluctance to do the right thing. And overall all of it, in all of this sloppiness, if you will, God is not mentioned and yet he still keeps doing his thing. It still keeps going. And I guess if if I were to have a point, I guess I'm a 1 point guy, not a 3 point guy. You know, like people who preach I got 3 points. I got 3 points today. That that our our, our life is is sloppy. It's not put together. I don't want to down talk anyone's life like it's sloppy, but I think we can admit in a general sense it, it's not that put together, right, as a whole. And at any moment, it could maybe go a different way. I think at our best, um, you know, we, we manage what we can, and we accept the areas. Somewhere mentally, we accept the areas that we can't control, and we try and cope with that somehow. That's kind of right where we're at. We, we, do, we put our hands on what we can and what we can't accept. We're like, ah, you know, maybe we'll deal with that later. Life is like that rolling train, and we're just trying to figure out if and when we can get a hold of it. And again, that's those micro, those macro levels. But again, the, where, where's the spirit? If, you, if you're still wondering, okay, where this all ties into, again, we've rationalized God the Father. We've somehow rationalized Jesus the friend, right? Somehow that's sort of a common thing. Like, you don't have to go far, particularly in a Western culture, like this evangelical. Uh, Church type culture for people to somehow relate to that, but then we get to talking about the spirit, and then people get a little bit like, "Okay, I'm over here for whatever reason that may be." But I would say that that is the most common version of God that's around us, and yet we seem it seems distant. So where is that spirit? It's it's in the the, the decisions that we make, good, bad, or indifferent. Life, are those, life is those decisions. And you know what? We do have the grace of God where we might make a really firm decision and it, it might be wrong. That's where God's grace comes in, right? So then we can keep and go ahead and have a chance to make another decision. You know, I just, I feel ultimately the spirit, you know, going back to something like Song of Solomon, that intimacy, right? The, that, that's what that story is talking about, not mentioning God either, but that intimacy Again, these are those, those spiritual principles that God has laid out for us that are, to me, very organic. And I use the word organic to refer to it being natural, like not foreign, not something set apart, but right here with us. And I hope that, uh, that this story, this time, has, has kind of, I don't know, just shed some light on that and given us maybe a little food for thought for those decisions. And, and one thing... I'll kind of close with is I don't want the um, metaphor of the rolling train to feel like it's the work. Like we got to work to go catch this train and grab onto it. Because I tell you what, if you ever get a hold of that train, you might end up seeing. Okay, I got a seat here. See, now I can let go. And that decision is now one of relief, one where we can let go and just let it ride and be a part of that. And again, I don't want to make this be, hey, we got to go get Jesus or go get this and that. I want us to be firm in who we are. Ultimately, like, you know, this is focusing on a woman. And again, we talk about, you know, women being oppressed. At different times in life, different people are oppressed. And I feel like God moves on situations so that we can be all that we're supposed to be, right? I want us to be confident that we are all who we're supposed to be that we're not trying to be someone else, that we're not trying to go somewhere else just to get away from something, that we stand in it, and and we and, and again, once we do that, that spirit comes through, and there's a working that we just can't predict. We can't see it coming, but it's there and it's unfolding for us. So, thank you guys for your time. Let's, uh, let me pray, and I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Ben. Um, yeah, Lord, thank you for... Um, your grace and Your might. Thank You for the decisions that we, that, that You know You allow us to make and to go through and to kind of see um, the unfoldings of it all, Lord. Um, yeah, we, we pray that Your that Your love would be on us, so that we would feel secure and comforted, confident to uh, to be who we are, be who we're supposed to be, and be confident that we are that person. And that we are the individual. Um, God, you love and care for us. And we're thankful for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.